You are listening to the Stand with Dignity podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. Protestant nativists 
who did have supporters, by the way, in the American Congress, had ancient roots in anti-Catholicism in England. That anti-Catholicism racialized the Irish, portraying them as dirty, uncivilized, sexually promiscuous, and mentally feeble agents of the Pope. American newspaper archives show that job advertisements sometimes specifically excluded Irish applicants as well as, of course, other groups. So anti-Irish prejudice, which is not known today, I think, at least not in America, um, it's a historical phenomenon, was sometimes called, or is called when people study it today, hibernophobia. Third example. In the early 20th century, fear of the Bolshevik Revolution was used to discriminate against and exclude immigrants from Eastern Europe and Russia, whether they showed leftist tendencies or not. Raids and deportations took place against a background of immigration quotas that overwhelmingly favored Northern Europeans, such as English and Germans. And in my own country, Canada, that Northern European preference was in place right up through the first half of the, t of the 20th century. Why? Um, because Northern Europeans, and especially Protestants, were thought to be naturally peaceful, productive, and civilized, unlike those from Eastern and Southern Europe. Um, and those immigration quotas actually in Canada, I'm not sure about, about America, also try to exclude potential immigrants from the Ottoman Empire. All of those groups were classified as non-preferred. So those are my three historical examples. There are obviously much, much more egregious cases than these three. For instance, the case of African Americans and the Jewish people. And still other examples could be given, for instance, the 2012 murder of six in the Wisconsin Sikh temple shooting. Um, lately, we hear of a plot by white supremacists to murder um, African Americans and Jews. The plot happily was diffused, but there have been other murders. Um, I cannot refrain from mentioning the scurrilous and danger, dangerous um, insults leveled by Donald Trump against Mexicans or Latinos. Scurrilous and dangerous. Um, so we don't yet have enough historical perspective to judge the intensity and duration of Islamophobia in North America. It's definitely not of the degree of bigotry and oppression of African Americans, and of course, you have not started off in this country at the terrible, you know, with the terrible disadvantages of African Americans. It's probably more durable, Islamophobia, than the three um, examples that I have cited. Perhaps Islamophobia will turn out to be more in the region of anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish feeling, Judeophobia, although, um, Muslims, I think partly because of the sufferings and the experience of the Jewish people, um, are not going to be as vulnerable in the West as those people were historically. The point I would like to make, in any case, is about a common experience of immigrants, and indeed encounter anywhere in the world of different cultural and religious groups. And I deliberately chose those three lesser known examples to make that 
point. I mean, this is a continuing human experience with a historical continuity. And the historical examples I gave, in fact, exhibit some of the characteristics of Islamophobia today. Racialized religious discrimination, fear of difference. Fear is um, um, a very big driver of Islamophobia, and obviously it's not helped by events such as those that um, took place in Paris yesterday. Um, ancient prejudices imported from abroad, security concerns, and support for prejudice in high government circles. So those are the characteristics, some of the characteristics of Islamophobia, but they are not new. They should be placed in historical perspective. So let me dwell, actually, for a moment on the last element I mentioned, perpetration of hatred against Islam by influential figures, including those in government. One really disappointing thing about Islamophobia is the way it is legitimized. It is widely accepted that prejudice and hatred are wrong, but Islam is somehow the exception. Somehow, somehow it's okay for cultural figures and politicians and so forth to say things about Muslims and Islam that they would not say about other people, and these things sometimes get a very wide um, reception. But actually, this has often been the case with other kinds of prejudice in the past. It seems that every prejudice has at some time been respectable with prominent mainstream activists and has existed and flourished alongside high ideals. So even that, as hurtful as it is, is not exactly new. Um, to give one very striking example, we have the coexistence of slavery with the self-evident truth laid down in the Declaration of Independence that all men are considered, are created equal. I mean, that would be a very prominent example. Before I link this history to Imam Hussein, let me turn to the subject of Shiism and Islamophobia because I've been asked by your organizers to um, address that subject in, in particular. Now, um, you can tell me later if I'm wrong, but my perception is that Shiites as Shiites are not particularly the target of Islamophobia. I, mean, I, I did some research also before I came and I don't see that there's a particular anti-Shiite um, um, feeling. The simple reason for this is that Shiites, um, is that the public and media are not really able to distinguish between Shiites and Sunnites. I mean, it's in the nature of prejudice that it sort of looks at a group of people as being all the same. So if someone has Islamophobic tendencies, they're not going to exactly go and do research and find out who um, Shiites are. There's no real clear idea in the media and other public discourse of Shiism that can be made um, into, tar into a target. So whatever is attributed to one group is vaguely attributed to the others. And um, you know that the events in Paris and other things um, will be attributed to you because you are a Muslim even though Shiites are the first victims of, uh, of ISIS. And, and similar movements. And in fact, it's the goal of the movements first to eliminate um, 
um, dissident or different groups internally, Shiites, that is. Um, I think that um, um, media, um, some of the public, is aware of Shiite-Sunite differences to an extent because they're aware that there is some conflict between the two groups in Iraq, um, for instance, or lately in Syria. Um, but I think generally they tend to take that as a sign that, um, well, Muslims have been fighting for all kinds of years and they are the kind of people who hold ancient prejudices and so forth. So um, I don't think that that perception reaches a level where um, people can actually distinguish to the t between the two groups. Um, the division between the two groups actually makes Muslims less effective in, in, in countering Islamophobia. And um, um, speaking to um, um, Brother Zain um, um, uh, last night when he got me from the airport, um, one of the things that we were speaking about is how do you reply as a Shiite to someone who you know, is unhappy with Islam or makes Islamophobic remarks. And I think we both came to the conclusion that a way not to reply is to say, well, I'm a Shiite, I'm not with those people, and in fact, I'm the first victim even before Western tourists or anyone else, and then start citing the various massacres and so forth. Um, I don't think it's effective, um, and I notice that this is not being done here today. Um, and um, it also wrecks or affects the unity that I think would be necessary in, in the West to um, counter um, uh, Islamophobia. Now, um, Sunni-Shiite harmony is not easy. It involves thorny historical and doctrinal questions that have to be worked on over a very long term. Um, um, so progress in interreligious dialogue, I think that another speaker has made this, um, this point, um, in all cases is something that has to be worked on. It's not something that's entirely worked out. It involves tolerance and not um, agreement. Interreligious and intercultural relations depend above all on discovering and building on universal points of contact. And I would suggest to you that such a point of contact is found in the sacrifice of Imam Hussein. Karbala can serve as a universal point of contact, emotional contact, because of the power of the tragedy. Those who hear of the events of Karbala experience the pathos and triumph of the martyr at a basic emotional level. The drama of Karbala and personality of Imam Hussein appeal to an innate human desire for justice. And as such, Karbala may help to bridge the sectarian and other divides, as I think that we have heard from the councilwoman today, for instance. The story, in fact, seems to become more true as it expands beyond its original context and is remembered and retold in different environments and circumstances such as today on the East Coast of the New World in the company of representatives of different religious communities. In a new context, the universal themes of faith, justice, and sacrifice come even more to the fore unburdened by cultural particularities and responding to new cultures and issues. 
One of these issues is Islamophobia, the theme displayed in the events of Karbala of oppression and the struggle against it also teaches about the oppression of prejudice and discrimination. This is again a universal human theme and lesson, just as I've tried to illustrate oppression and discrimination as a universal human problem. And it's expressed in the saying that has now become widespread, every day is Karbala and every day is Akshara. The lesson conveyed by the martyrdom of Imam Hussein is that oppression and the struggle against it are truly universal. Since injustice and oppression are present in all times and places, people should join, people should join and work together to counter them. The tragedy of Karbala is a rich myth, and here by myth I don't mean um, something fanciful or non-historical but rather a powerful story with universal resonance that can be interpreted to reveal different meanings and always yields new meaning. I will give you some examples, and these are personal interpretations. So the, t the people of Kufa, the town in southern Iraq toward which Hussein was traveling, who failed to come to Hussein's aid, may be interpreted as representing people who stand by while others suffer injustice that the Kufans sent letters to Hussein pledging support but did not actually support him, may be read as a parable about the consequences of giving lip service to principles but not following through with action. The Karbala myth has a cosmic dimension, which is very instructive. Statements attributed to Jafar al-Sadiq, the great grandson of Hussein and sixth Imam of the Shiites. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad describes how the angels and jinn mourned the martyr Hussein and will continue to do so until the day of judgment. According to the sayings of the Imams, which are the source for many of Shiite beliefs, not only did Fatima, the resplendent, uh, beloved daughter of the Prophet and wife of Ali weep for her son Hussein in heaven, but also the earth, sun, fish, and animals wept. One lesson that may be taken from this dimension of the story, the cosmic dimension, of, is the importance, the preciousness of the suffering of any person. Karbala in itself was not a great battle. It didn't involve large armies or finally much strategic importance. This may be interpreted as signifying that instances of oppression and injustice that seem small on an earthly plane, small in the political scheme of things, or small because they affect only powerless persons, violate in reality the very order of natural justice, such that, such that even the heavens would weep. I would like now to turn to the father of Hussein and the first Imam of the Shia, Ali ibn Abi Talib. For another model, replete with meaning and relevant, I think, to the subject of Islamophobia. Or in the more universal perspective, I'm trying to um, encourage today, relevant to the human condition of suffering from prejudice and um, oppression. First of all, let me explain for the benefit of your non-Shiite guests why I am mentioning Ali in uh, a talk that concerns Hussein, the son of Ali. 
The Imams and the Shiite view typify different virtues and characteristics. Ali, for instance, who unlike the other Imams had the opportunity to rule, was a paragon of justice. The fourth Imam, called the adornment of worshipers, epitomized mildness and sincere piety. For instance, the absent 12th Imam, following whose names Shiites pronounce the formula, may God hasten the relief he will bring, personifies hope for a future just world. While each Imam may embody a certain characteristic demanded by his particular situation, they all finally have the same characteristics the imam in Shiite belief. The Imams altogether have the same essence of, a, of an ideal human being. And so to speak about the virtue of one is to speak about the virtue of all. Now, concerning Ali ibn Abi Talib, father of Hussein, although Ali, like Hussein, was martyred, Shiite tradition has preferred to focus on his life which also constitutes a powerful myth in the sense I defined myth earlier. And when you are um, thinking of how to deal with Islamophobia, yes, there are lessons from the martyrdom of Karbala, but you also need, one also needs lessons from life. Um, the image of Ali that is probably best known is that of a brave warrior and just ruler but I'm interested in his role as a wisdom figure. Um, Ali is portrayed as the very epitome of rationality, and the Arabic word is, is aq, sometimes translated reason or intellect. And the quality of reason that was epitomized in Ali, and which is in fact considered to be part of the essence of all the Imams, has a central place in Shiite thought. It is important in relation to the subject of Islamophobia and intercultural relations to understand that reason, the Arabic word again is aq, in Shiism and indeed in classical Islamic tradition overall, is not simply a quality of the intellect or something like book learning. Someone could be a very skilled surgeon or a clever and successful businessman and still completely lack the quality of aq. Aq, reason, is rather the moral wisdom that completes and guides the intellect according to Shiite tradition, including, crucially, in one's relations with other human beings and social interactions. Many of Ali's sayings address such matters. In one of his wise dicta, Ali says, a person's rationality shows in his dealings with others. Another dictum attributed to Ali says, reason is a natural part of human nature. The word for human nature here is fitra, which I think many of you will know. And it is developed through experience. The Arabic word there possibly is the same in Urdu, is tajriba. As in many of the wisdom sayings attributed to Ali ibn Abi Talib, this is an aphorism that has to be reflected on and interpreted. I would express it more fully as humans, unless they are perverse, unless they're going against their own nature, become more morally <coughs> rational towards others as they gain more experience of the world and different kinds, and meet up with different kinds of people. Ali ibn Abi Talib also says in another one of his wise sayings, wisdom is a tree that sprouts on the heart and bears fruit 
on the tongue. In other words, true wisdom does not come from mere knowledge or book learning, but springs from moral understanding. And you will know if someone is truly rational by their wise and moderate words. This saying of Ali may be understood as a statement against hate speech. Um, but the sayings of Ali concerning reason and wisdom, and there are many, are of course only secondarily a reproach to haters and others who fail to develop their reason or aqh. The sayings are primarily positive exhortations to cultivate moral wisdom in human relations. Therefore, in relation to Islamophobia, they can be seen as advice to continue to seek good relations and understanding, always trying to counter ignorance with reason. Um, in Shiite tradition, it's very important, and very important in the sayings of the Imams, as you know, that there is reason, aq, and there is ignorance, jahl. And each of them has armies. And human beings should be on the side of reason and constantly combat ignorance or jahl in all of its manifestations. And in fact, at the beginning of the collection of Kulaini, there is a whole book devoted to just that subject. So these are very important sayings of the Imams and, to, and uh, very interesting, um, um, very interesting and somewhat parallel to Greek thought. So I will now summarize my ideas in the four minutes and 28 seconds I have left. <laughs> so um, history, I think, confirms that Islamophobia is just one instance of prejudice and hatred. Though there are certainly different degrees of hatred and oppression, not every people suffers the same thing, intolerance is a universal human condition with some common characteristics, such as, for instance, routinization of hatred, as I think has happened to Islam um, lately. Since hatred, moreover, does not finally distinguish its targets, Sunnis and Shiites, Shi uh, Shiites in the West suffer Islamophobia together. The two schools therefore do have a strong interest in good relations, both in order to show to the outside world that they themselves are not subject to irrational hatred, and in order to work together to counter Islamophobia. Disagreements will always remain between different religions and other groups. That's a natural human condition. The important thing is not to completely work out these differences, as some of the other speakers have said, but rather to find points of human contact. The events of Karbala can serve as such points of contact, and I think we can see that very clearly in the events today. Karbala constitutes a powerful myth with universal themes that resonate at a basic <coughs> level. There are certain myths, there are certain stories in different cultures that really have a capacity to carry their meaning cross-culturally. This is surely one. The story has given meaning to the Shiite communities who have remembered and elaborated it for over a thousand years, and it continues to speak to modern times and circumstances. Finally, the concept of reason or aq, which has been very important, in Shiism in general, in Shiite law, theology, and modern thought, is a good practical resource for dealing with Islamophobia. Reason 
in the sense of art, in the sense of moral wisdom, which is considered to be a quality of all the Imams, perhaps particularly of Ali ibn Abi Talib, but also of the others, um, is epitomized in this figure. The many sayings of Ali concerning reason and wisdom suggest that reason really consists of a kind of a moral wisdom in, con in conducting one's affairs and relations with other human beings. Cultivating that moral wisdom, that God-given aql, because the Imams say, and Shiite tradition says, that this is innate in every human being, is the best answer to the forces of what the Imams describe as ignorance or jahl. Thank you very much. Thank you.